failure. It's something that every human being knows about because Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what happens when you fail as a Christian? What happens when you have a a massive meltdown in your Christian life, a, a Simon Peter kind of moment where you turn your back on the Lord, I do not know the man, so to speak. Is there life after failure? I'm Pastor Jeff Shreve, and you're listening to Real Truth for Today. I am the pastor at First Baptist Church in Texarkana, Texas, and the founder of From His Heart Ministries, a national and international television and radio ministry. From His Heart is heard every weeknight at 6 p.m. Central Time on American Family Radio. And we want to talk today about life after failure. And to help me in this subject is a friend of mine who wrote a book. I hold it in my hands right now. It's one of my favorite books. I was introduced to this book by Shonda Pierce. Shonda Pierce was at our church probably 15 years ago or so doing an event, and she talked about her brother. She said, my brother wrote a book. It's called Failure and How I Achieved It, A Journey from Addiction to Hope. Joining me on the program today is Dr. Mike Courtney. Dr. Mike Courtney is the author of Failure and How I Achieved It. He is the executive director of Branches Counseling Center. Dr. Mike Courtney had a massive failure that God used, Romans 8.28, that God worked together for good. There is life after failure. Mike, welcome to the program. Thanks, Pastor Jeff. It's great to be on the program with you. It's great to talk to you. Okay, so I got to ask you, Mike, um, the the title of the book. Uh, it's bold. It's raw. It's honest. It's uh, shocking. Uh, most people most people wouldn't uh, wouldn't have that as a title. Was that a difficult title to come up with? You know, it 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 wasn't. I don't say this lightly. I, I really feel like it's something that God gave me that title. Uh, I as I was writing the book, that's not necessarily what I was thinking of. But when we just came down to publishing it, and I had to come up with a title, uh, that that just appeared. And in the years since, it has proven to be the right title because so many people said, I, you know, I wouldn't have picked up the book except for the title. I saw the title, and that just uh, prompted me to, to read that. So I think it, I really do think it's something that God said, hey, uh, here's what it's supposed to be. Well, I, when when Shonda shared the title of the book, uh, it it arrested my attention, and I said, mm-hmm. I got to get that book. And Mike, <laughs> I got to tell you, when I got the book some 15 years ago and uh, read it, it instantly became one of my favorite books because it is uh, it is so filled with hope, and uh, it, it really speaks. Uh, one of my favorite scriptures, Proverbs 24:16, for a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Mm, Uh, A righteous man, not a wicked man, not a godless man, but a righteous man. And I think every Christian, we we know about failure and we know about uh, the secret sins in our lives and the failures in our lives. And 
and you bring yours out into the open and you're willing to say, hey, this, is, this was my failure and this was the effects of my failure and this is how God worked a miracle. So, so Mike, can you share uh, just the background? I know you had an interesting childhood. Can you share uh, about that and just kind of the, the nuts and bolts of the book? Absolutely. I, uh, yeah, Shonda and I uh, shared the same uh, background. She somehow took it and became a comedian and made a fortune off of it. I went into the ministry, and so it really fouled me up. But <laughs> we just we made different choices with the same background. I uh, my my father was bipolar. I don't. I always say to people. Uh, what I'm getting ready to tell you are not excuses. They're reasons. It's helpful to look back and see some of the reasons. I made every choice I made. I made every decision I made. So I have no excuses. I'm responsible for for uh, the outcome of that. But my father was bipolar. He was also a minister. And so we lived with that unpredictability and the chaos when he was good he was really good. He was fun and funny and and talented, uh, but he would sink into what I called the slew of despond to this horrible, horrible depression and rage, and it just created a lot of a lot of chaos in our home and in me. The first sermon that I ever preached, I was uh, 12 years old, and uh, on a Friday night or Saturday night. Dad had locked himself in the bathroom and said, I'm going to kill myself. And the whole night was spent with my mom and the kids kind of pacing around and crying and begging him to come out. And and on Sunday morning, Mom said to me, we lived, this is back in the day when the parsonage was right next door to the church, which was another whole traumatic experience in itself. But uh, Mom said, why don't you go next door and... and, uh, and preach. Don't tell him whatever you do. Don't tell him that Daddy's sick. Uh, just go over and preach and say that he just he can't come. And so that's the first sermon I ever preached. It would have been a great time to talk about honesty, about <laughs> about the church uh, being redemptive and reaching out. But instead, it was the beginning of keeping secrets, of saying we never we never let anybody know what is going on. With that kind of background, I. I, I, I desperately tried to find some safe place in my life, and particularly some place where someone would protect me, would love me. I was my my father was supposed to be the protector; he wasn't. I had to protect myself. Now I had to protect the family, and so I began to search without even knowing it. I began to search for that person that would love me and protect me. Um, I did what many red-blooded American boys would do with that kind of story, I became a minister. Uh, it's a <laughs> it's a great place to um, find affirmation and value and, um, you know, people uh, preach a sermon and, and 600 people pat me on the back on Sunday morning and say, man, that was a great thing. But it also was a place where those secrets just haunted me and I... And I, hungry for some kind of affection, not being able to receive it from, at this point now, my wife, the church, even God, began to make horrible, horrible choices. Did Now, Mike, did uh, when, when you and Doris got married, how old were you? Uh, 24. 
And did she know all about your past and your your dad and your upbringing? No, no. Uh, my my father uh, continued the ministry uh, until I got married. He, uh, Jeff, married Doris and I. He was a pastor of a small church in Middle Tennessee. He he married Doris and I. The day of the wedding, he said to me, pulled me aside and said, "I've I've got my car packed, and after the wedding." I'm leaving your mother. I'm driving off, which was his style. That was his way of doing things. So I went through this wedding ceremony again with this with this uh, conflict of happy, greatest day of my life. I'm excited about that, and also this horrible secret of I know what Dad's going to do. Nobody else knows. And again, it would have been a great time to pull my wife aside and say, "Let's start our marriage." with truthfulness and honesty and but I didn't uh we went to our honeymoon um I talked to her and said this is what's happening and Doris to her great credit said um let's go back we need to turn around and go back and we went back and began to care for my mom who was just in shock uh at that time two sisters my two sisters and again keeping secrets never letting anybody know what's really going on being afraid that if they knew, if she knew my story, she might not love me. If the church knew my story, and and that pattern just began to uh, complicate things tremendously. Mike, what happened with your dad? He disappeared for uh, probably five or six years. We had had absolutely no idea where he was finally found out uh, that he had run off with another woman. He he was a serial adulterer. He had committed adultery many, many times with uh, against my mother while pastoring. Uh, and we finally found out that he had run off with uh, another woman. After about six years, he resurfaced, and, and we reconnected. Never, obviously never became best friends but we but I, I worked hard particularly in the latter years of his life to develop as healthy a, a relationship as I could I do think interestingly enough I do think that down through the years his the bipolar began to be more manageable and he did much much better particularly in, in the later years of his life and and Jeff I have every confidence that he that, that that he reconciled with God, that he that that he, you know, that, that he'll be in heaven. And I'll see him someday and have the first healthy conversation, perhaps that we've ever had. But but never really came back to the church. Never never uh, repented in terms of of trying to make amends with with my mother or with the family at all. So from that background, Mike, did you uh, is it is it fair to say you had a kind of a um, performance-based acceptance with the Lord and, and a fear there that, you know, if you got out of line, he was going to shun you? Or how, how did that warp you as you started out in marriage and in ministry? Oh, a- absolutely. I, uh, I've i always compared it to that, you know, the whack-a-mole game where the, the little mole pops up and you, and you whack it in the head. And I just felt like God was up there just hoping I would mess up. And and when I did, and I did, uh, when I did, he just was delighted in, in whacking me in the head and knocking me down and seeing if I could get back up again. That 
and and you know, I'm sure you've worked with enough people to know that interesting enough that can stand you in good stead. I became a a very successful pastor. I I was active in my denomination, involved in national ministries. Uh, the the performance drove me to to do well on the one front, but it also with every success there was this deepening gulf between who I appeared to be and who I really was. And and every success would be met with a yes, but if they really knew. If they if they had any idea of your story, if they if they saw this in any way. So it's just this incredible dichotomy that the better you do, the worse you feel. Until finally, I just you just come to the point where you cannot live with that uh, kind of tension uh, anymore. Well, and you had nobody you felt you could talk to about it. No, no, that. Uh, it, and again, I want to make sure that it, you know that I say that was not true. That right. I, had, I had friends that loved me, and and my and a wife that loved me, and and a God that loved me. That was not true. But but yes, the feeling was the only thing I have going for me is this facade, is this mask that I wear, and the most dangerous thing in the world would be to take the mask off. And so I became an, an just an expert at. Uh, at telling partial truths, at, at at hinting around, and in fact, at the the great compliment that I would always get when I when I preached and, and pastored a great church that that grew rapidly, became a large church, and the compliment I would get is, I've I've never known anyone who is as honest as you, who just is willing to tell their story from the pulpit and be honest and transparent, and I always say I was telling ninety eight percent of the truth. It was the 2% I didn't tell that got me in trouble. Wow. Well, we're talking to Dr. Mike Courtney. He wrote a book, Failure and How I Achieved It. And when we uh, get back from the break, Mike is going to share about uh, what happened as he was holding on to this secret from his background and, and uh, this performance-based acceptance with God. And uh, he had a massive failure, but he also had a massive restoration Uh, He experienced the grace of God in such a wonderful and life-changing way. And hey, what happened to Mike can happen to you. There is life after failure. A righteous man falls seven times and rises again. You're listening to Real Truth for today, and I'm your host, Pastor Jeff Shreve. Don't go away. There's this couple named Kyle and Katie, and they were excited. They were expecting their third child, and then they got some really bad news. Their unborn baby desperately needed surgery in utero. They had switched the way they pay their health care bills from health insurance to MediShare, so they were wondering, is this going to work? It's a life and it's my son's life, and you know we should all be doing anything we can for that. Kyle knew they were looking at a mountain of medical bills. And of that, I had to pay almost nothing. We felt like MediShare was rallying behind us, almost like family. MediShare is a community of Christians who care about people like Kyle and Katie, 
and little Liam, who is now a happy little boy who loves to play outside with his brother and sister. You know, Liam's around because of that. We'll always remember. Find out how you can save $500 a month or more on your health care. Call 833-44-BIBLE. That's 833-44-BIBLE. 833-44-BIBLE. To sharpen the biblical worldview of Christians and to share the good news of Jesus Christ, that is the mission of the Christian Worldview Radio Program. I'm host David Wheaton, inviting you to join us this Saturday morning at 9 Eastern, 8 Central, as we discuss all matters of life and faith from a decidedly biblical perspective. The Christian Worldview, Saturday mornings at 9 Eastern, 8 Central, right here on American Family Radio. Hey, moms and dads, are you at your wit's end? Hi, this is Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I'm so grateful for the partnership we have with American Family Radio. We share a common goal to bring hope to hurting families through the life-changing medium of radio. Be sure to listen Saturday afternoons at 4.30 Central on American Family Radio. Find help and hope for your family with Parenting Today's Teens. The American Family Association presents the Marriage Family Life Conference 2022, along with a youth apologetics track. The Marriage Family Life Conference does not exclude children on purpose. It's It's built built in. in. We want families to come. And the thing is, if you look at what people who hate God are doing, they are going through great lengths to indoctrinate our children. Yes, And so this is a, a chance to be on offense. They're going to be equipped. You know, at the same time you're being equipped, we care about what's happening with our children. Please join us for this year's conference, July 7th through the 9th, at the Bancourt South Arena in Tupelo, Mississippi. Register now at marriagefamilylife.net. Better hurry, though. Registration ends on May 15th. We're just looking for ways to help equip families for what's going on. Welcome back to Real Truth for Today. I'm your host, Pastor Jeff Shreve. We're talking to my friend, Dr. Mike Courtney. Mike Courtney wrote the book, Failure and How I Achieved It, A Journey from Addiction to Hope. So Mike, as we left off, you're a successful pastor. You're married. You have two boys at this time. Is that correct? I did, yes, and and still do, amazingly (laughs) enough. (laughs) Yes. So... How did the there were some cracks in the foundation, obviously that right. you were covering up. How did those become? What happened when the the failure started to arise? Yeah, I, uh, I, I in the midst of that, Jeff. Again, sometimes we take what was lacking in our life and we can work hard to to do better on the other side. I, I was a great dad. I I, I loved the boys and and. Uh, because my father was not able to be attentive to me, I made it a point to do that, and to uh, one of the one of the uh, gifts that my wife gave me is that I, I put the boys to bed every night. I would be the one to tuck them in, and I would I would 
say to them, I would say, Josh, you, you are so fast. I saw you run today. You you are so smart. And Josh is like his mother. He's shy. He'd say, oh, Dad, don't say that. Don't say that. I would say to Jacob, Jacob, you're so fast. And Jacob's too much like his dad. He would say, and I'm funny, and I'm handsome, and I can <laughs> jump high, and all those things. And then I would sing to them. I would sing a little song. Has anybody told you I love you today? Has anybody told you I love you today? And I'd, I'd, I'd put my lips so close to their ear that it would tickle, and I'd sing that song to them, trying desperately to instill in them what I somehow knew was lacking in me, and that's the ability to feel love, to know that someone loved me. I began to, while that was going on, I I began to pull away from any uh, one who would know the secrets, who would look behind the curtain and uh, and and see the wizard, and particularly my wife and and God, searching for someone that could that that would just get me, that would just just love me for who I was, and uh, obviously bypassing all the people that really did. I I had a series of affairs. I had three affairs over 21 years of marriage, uh, all about seven years apart. One lasted a few weeks. One lasted a few months and one lasted for over a year. They were all increasingly devastating, in, increasingly destructive, and increasingly depraved, I think, in, in my, my own behavior. The, the incongruity of who I wanted to be, of who people thought I was, and who I really was, was just um, crazy-making. So I uh, I finally reached the point where the, the the last affair had taken place. We we uh, two of them pretty much kept secret. Uh, Doris would know. In fact, she she didn't know all. She would know bits and pieces enough to uh, enough to step up and say this has to stop, and so it would stop. But but really not know all the details. The last just became uh, very public. I had moved from one church to another, uh, trying to escape geographically. Uh, one of the things I say often in recovery with people is, wherever I go, there I am. So I was still there, and uh, the problem was still there. Doris came in one day. It, it was uh, the, the Monday after Easter. I was pastoring now a, a great church in uh, in Florida. By the way, in, the, in this book, I have changed names and places and all those things, and I will often have someone say to me, oh, I, I, I used to live in Miami. I say, really? I didn't. I just said that in the book. That's, <laughs> I'm changing the thing. So I moved to Florida, uh, had a great Easter Sunday, the biggest Easter Sunday the church had ever had, and just a glorious day. And on Monday, I went to my office, and Doris called and said, "I we can't. We, we can't do this anymore. Joshua, my oldest son, was in college at the time. Jacob was still at home. And she said, I'm I'm leaving. I'm packing up and leaving. And don't even bother coming home. Well, I jumped in the car and drove home. It took me several years to realize that she had called me from the road. She had already left. Oh, wow. Got home, and, uh, and Doris was gone. Jacob was gone. They had packed up and left. And my life came crashing down. The My... My career, my my uh, job, my family, my reputation, everything that I had worked so hard to create uh, and to prop up uh, just came crashing down. And I sat in the middle of an apartment in uh, Orlando, Florida, 
and it absolutely was the darkest moment of my life. Mike, in that in that instance, I mean, does suicide cross your mind? You know, I I, I want to be really candid. I, I it crossed my mind, yes. I don't think I ever seriously, and I'm I'm sure I never seriously considered that. What I considered more than that was, interestingly enough, following my father's footsteps. Uh, and in and isn't it something that we most of us grow up saying either. I want to be just like my old man, or I'm not going to be anything like my old man. But in either case, our identity usually comes from our from our fathers. And so, what crossed my mind was saying, "I'm going to I'm going to do that. I'm going to disappear. I'm yeah. just going to I'm going to move to a Wastapec, Mexico, and no one will ever hear from me again. And 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 I'll just drop from the face of the earth. That was the greater temptation to just right. to just pack and run, just run away. How did yeah. you? How did you, I mean, did you talk to the church, or were you just immediately gone? In in our particular uh, camp, in our particular denomination, the process was that I would, I would stand up and resign, publicly resign, without explanation, and then and then disappear and then be gone. It, terribly unhealthy. No opportunity for closure. For and, and I don't I don't I don't blame the church. I don't know a much better way to do that. Well, now I do, but uh, but it just, it's just unhealthy. There's no there's no closure. There's no opportunity to uh, make amends to repent publicly. It's just a it's just a, a hard hard way to do that, and yet I, in many ways it's the church trying to protect itself. So I, I understand that. I I so I I resign and and was done. So that support system was gone. My wife had moved to another state. That support system was gone. I went to see my oldest son who was in college at the time, and uh, and when I went to see him, he said, Dad. Don't ever come back again. I don't. I don't ever want to see you again. Oh, wow. And so that support was gone. So what I, in retrospect, what God is doing is stripping everything away, particularly all those places where I had put on this mask and 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 been afraid to allow people to see who I really was. He's stripping all that away until all that's left is a God who knows me. And he either loves me or he doesn't. I have to come to grips with that. Either he's gonna he's gonna accept me, knowing everything there is about me, or he's not. And and I can say now it was the greatest moment of my life. It was the it was the the most certainly the most important, significant moment when I'm finally, with a lot of work, able to say, you know what, I believe God loves me. I think I think He does. Amen. Now, okay, so Mike, how old were you uh, when you when you feel like you were born again? Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Our our theological bents probably rise up in this in this conversation. I uh, I, I was at twelve or thirteen when I made a serious decision for for Christ. Um, I always say I grew up in a denomination that believed in backsliding and practiced it frequently. Uh, so I I got saved again when I was 13 and 14 and 15. Every year at church camp, I'd get saved all over again. Um, 
I, I do believe. I do believe that as I as I look back and as I think through, I, I do believe that I made a decision for Christ and God reached down and claimed me at that moment. But I will tell you that I did not, I, while I was living for him outwardly, I did not know that personal, intimate relationship with him until this moment when I am now nearly 50 years old and after this massive, massive failure coming to this place where I where I could hear the voice of God, where I knew that that yes, yes, that that he that he did love me. Okay, so from the book, you you were at this place alone in your all your support system gone. There's the desire to just run away to Mexico. Uh, what what changed to where you didn't do that? Uh, you know, Jeff, I have um, as we'll probably talk about before we're done. I spend most of my time now. Uh, working with uh, couples and counseling them through very often these kinds of circumstances. And I say to them, quite honestly, uh, the, the the motivating force at that moment was my two sons, was my children, that I, that I want to find a way to break this generational curse and to and to make their life better, and it, it wasn't my wife. It wasn't even God. It 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 was I. I want to do something to fix this for my kids. That was the motivating force, and and I and I think I think God's okay with that. I think God will take whatever He will give Him and certainly work it out for His glory and for our good. Um, my wife and I had seen a counselor in another state before this this crash and burn moment. And I had, by the way, been lying to the counselor the whole time. I tell people, I, I know this doesn't work if you're going to lie to the counselor. <laughs> no. I've been lying to the counselor. But at, when she left, she went back to see that counselor. The counselor, <clears throat> by the grace of God, uh, called me, which was just an, an amazing thing. But the counselor called me. It had been it had been four or five days now. I really had no contact with my wife. She refused to take phone calls. Um I had resigned from the church. I'm trying to put pieces together and figure out what the next steps are. And she said, this is an addiction. It's a sexual addiction. Again, I use that word cautiously because I think sometimes we can use addiction as an excuse and kind of as an escape from taking responsibility for our own behavior. It's not that at all. But she was right. It was an addiction. There was there there was brain chemistry. There was uh, habitual behavior. There was family of origin issues. All that worked together to make my behavior sexually uh, addictive in 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 the way that it impacted me. She said, "You can't handle this on your own." And so I want you to go to a place. There's a clinic that I want you to go to. Now, there are others. This is the one that she knew and she sent me to, but it was a place in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, called PCS, Psychological Counseling Services. And, and uh, Jeff, it was absolutely life, not only life-changing, but life-saving to go and spend several weeks confronting uh, what was wrong in me, uh, confessing this incongruity, and beginning to find a, a, a language, a vocabulary, to let me talk my way through what had been going on in my life for so long. 
Well, one of the things I love, Mike, in the book is is when you have that experience with the Lord where you where you really understand how much He loves you. Mm-hmm. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes. We would... Uh... We would begin the day with group. Uh, it, it just so happened to be 10 or 12 guys there. We'd begin the day with group, telling our story, first name only, hi, my name's Mike, I'm a sexual addict, here's what I've done to be in this place. At the at the end of the group session, we would go out and wait in the lobby, and counselors would come and get us, and we'd spend long, grueling days dealing with that stuff. I'd, I'd sat in the lobby, and there was a guy by the name of Carl, nasty guy, scaly skin, pockmarked face, yellow teeth, all the marks of a lifelong addict. And Carl came over and sat down right beside me. He's one of these guys who talks too loud and too close. And uh, I always say, Jeff, if you've, I don't know if you've ever been to a place uh, for healing from sexual addiction, but the last thing you want is for one of them to come and sit down right beside <laughs> you. And Carl came and sat right beside me and said, and then this is not a, a particularly Christian place, but right. Carl said, I have been praying for you, and God gave me a verse of Scripture for you. It's Zephaniah 3.17. And I always uh, say, at that point I had two master's degrees in theology, and I don't know where Zephaniah is in the Bible. I can't find <laughs> Zephaniah. And Carl opened up a Bible, and he read to me, The Lord your God is mighty. He will deliver, he delights in you, he will deliver you, and he delights in you. He rejoices over you with singing. And then Carl said, Do you know that this morning, before you got out of bed, the God of the universe sang over you? And Jeff, when he said that, immediately what flashed into my mind was all of those years of me singing over John, my, oh, Josh and Jacob. Has anybody mm-hmm. told you I love you today? That scene flashed into my mind. And I said to Nasty Carl, I said, yes, yes, I do know that. There, there, weren't, there wasn't writing on the walls or fireworks. There was this absolute assurance. Yes, I do know that God is singing over me, and he does love me. And if he does then maybe other people can. Maybe not my wife. Maybe it's too late for that. Maybe my boys never will. But other people can, and I can begin to love myself. And it, it was the beginning of the beginning. It was the, it was the complete turning around and saying, I do not have to be that person who believes everybody, including God, if they really knew me, would not love me. Now there are some people that I know, especially God, they do know my story, and they do love me. Amen. We're talking to Dr. Mike Courtney. We're talking about his book, Failure and How I Achieved It. Hey, there is life in the Lord after failure, even as a Christian. So we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to be right back, and Mike's going to share the restoration part of his story as the Lord poured out his amazing grace, comfort, and transformation. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Real Truth for Today. Don't go away. When you hear this, this is American Family News. You know what follows is the truth. Your news from a Christian perspective. Hundreds of teachers are going to have to walk into that school building and they are forced to swallow 
political ideology that in many cases violates their very faith and conscience. If you miss it at the top of the hour, American Family News podcasts are available at AFN.net and sign up for our daily news brief at AFN.net. Dear One Million Moms, I've always thought that maybe your organization was making a mountain out of a molehill. But today, I cannot believe what I just saw on my TV. Concerned about the trash flowing into your home through today's media that simply will not censor itself? Make your voice heard. If you see trash in the media, tell us. Use the Submit Trash button at 1millionmoms.com. That's 1millionmoms.com. And thanks. The communist government has spoken. There's no room for Christianity within the walls of China. Hey, it's Michael Woolworth with Bible League International, and the man named Katsu is an evangelical pastor, a little more than 50. He serves outside of Beijing. I won't identify his village. But I would guess he has been beaten in jail 25 times over the course of his ministry. Most recently, they beat him so severely he could not get up for a week. They let him go and told him to never speak of Jesus again. About a week later, a knock came on his door. He was somewhat reluctant to open it, but he found Hyo the bitter atheist interrogator who beat him terribly had one question that burned in his heart all week long. Why were you at such peace when we were beating you? So Katsu would open his door, open his Mandarin Bible, and lead this bitter atheist to faith in Christ together. They've witnessed thousands coming to Christ who all need Bibles in China. At $5 a Bible, would you call 800-YES-WORD? 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD or give at sendbiblesnow.org. That's sendbiblesnow.org. Oops, there's a piece I missed a little bit. Grandpa, why do we always pick up litter when we go hiking? Well, we're just making it nicer for people who come after us a little bit. It's called stewardship. My grandfather taught me that you should always leave a place better than you found it. That it's important to invest in the lives of your children and grandchildren, leaving them with a godly legacy they can build on. That's why I decided to set up a charitable gift annuity with the AFA Foundation. It's called stewardship. I know that my gift will support a ministry that honors the biblical principles I hold dear, and it's a way to invest in the future of our country. The AFA Foundation also arranged for me to have a steady fixed income, so I don't have to worry in the midst of changing times. Call the AFA Foundation today to find out how you can set up a charitable gift annuity. Just call 800-326-4543, extension 345. Welcome back to Real Truth for Today. I'm your host, Pastor Jeff Shreve. We're talking to Dr. Mike Courtney. Mike is the executive director of Branches Counseling Center in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And he wrote the book some years ago called Failure and How I Achieved It, A Journey from Addiction to Hope. Now, Mike, as we uh, ended the last segment, you were talking about really embracing the love of God. And, and I want to ask you, tell me if you would agree with this. If when a person has trouble, and I, I think this is, this is problematic for lots of people, when you have trouble really accepting that God loves me warts and all, he, he knows everything about me, and he still loves me. He chose to love me. When you have trouble really accepting that, you're going to have trouble loving yourself, and you're going to have trouble with a host of other problems. Would you agree? Absolutely. I, I think you're right on track with that, Jeff. You know, he, it's interesting that two of the places where 
the scripture talks most about our relationships to other people. Jesus says, you know, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart. The second is like that, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then Paul, in his great admonition about about marriage, says, husbands, love your wives like you love your own bodies. There's something apparently that says, I will never be able to demonstrate or experience love for another person, another human being, I would say even love for God, to a higher degree than I can understand love for myself. I've got to be able to love myself in order to love my neighbor, love my wife, even to love God. And so that was such a, you know, all the complicated uh, psychological, physiological, emotional baggage that I brought into that place. But that was such a, a simple and profound moment to to be able to say, yes, knowing all of my story, knowing all the mistakes I have made and, and horrible, egregious sins I've committed, yes, God, I know that God loves me. I know that he does. And it's not, it's not an, again, an excuse. It's not licensed to say, okay, then none of that matters. What followed was, was a lot of really hard work to to learn to do better, to become a different person, to deal with some of that baggage. I, I, I say it was God's job to make me clean and sober. It's been my job to stay that way for the, for the last uh, 20 years. But but the beginning was that moment of saying, "Yes, I know. I know that he. I know that I know that I know that he loves me." Okay, so then when you had that that experience and that vision, I, I love that part of the book where where you felt the Lord just envelop you with His arms and His love. Was it after that that you wrote the letter, or was it before that that you wrote that letter to the Lord? Oh, yeah. That's, yes, the the counselor that I. Uh, was spending most of my time with uh, the evening before had said, I had said in passing, well, you know, if you know, I, I've I've never been one to let God know really what I'm thinking because I don't want Him to know. And the counselor said, you know that He knows. <laughs> Counselors have a terrible sense of humor. I said, I know. I'm, I'm making a joke. Yeah, I, I know that. And he wouldn't drop that. He said, No, I want you to go home and write a letter to God. And tell him exactly what you think, what you feel, and so I did, and it was absolutely. Uh, 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 in some ways, I'm almost embarrassed to say it was the most profane, uh, profanity-laced document I've ever produced. It, but I, I wanted to say, from the depth of my being, uh, God, I am a worthless piece of of crap. And and you know that, and and you made me this way, and I must be some kind of joke to you, because I have tried and begged and pleaded, and you've never made yourself known to me in a love. I mean, I, I just I just laid it all out. The next morning is when that encounter with Carl happened, and so oh. I always say, if if I had not written the letter. And God came and said, "I love you." I would have, I would have said to myself, "Yeah, but he doesn't really know, you know, he doesn't." Know. But I wrote the letter. I, I had written a letter, so to me, it was absolutely 
planned of God that that I would get it all out, I would say it all, and God would would the next morning answer my letter by saying, "Yeah, I know, I know all of that stuff, and I love you, and I and I love you anyway." I, I think about that verse, Psalm sixty-two, verse eight: "Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us." And that's exactly what you did. You poured out your heart, and you told him all your frustrations and your angers and the things from your childhood and and how he didn't seem to be there to deliver you. And that is really critical to get honest with the Lord, isn't it? It is. It is. I, I recognized at that moment that the same anger and frustration and, and bitterness that I held against my father for his betrayal— against all of those people that never made this up to me, even though they couldn't, uh, the, the the anger that I had towards my wife because she could not love me well enough, even though she couldn't. I realized that all of that, I, more than anything, I really held towards God, that I had kept him at an arm's length and said, I don't know why you love me, and then every time he would try, I would push him push him away. So to, to come to that moment of, of absolute uh, honesty and saying this is what's going on. I again, you're right, was crucial in in this healing. Interestingly enough, it 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 doesn't stop there, but for me to be absolutely honest and transparent then with with as many people as I possibly could that were involved in the 12 steps it says we sought to make amends to all those we had harmed except where to do so would be more injurious to them, to ourselves, or others. There are some people that I, that I, not only can I never make this up to them, Pastor Jeff, but I can I cannot even broach the subject. I can't even approach them because I've, I've done so much damage and, and caused so much harm. And I, and I know that. I understand that. I, I regret that, and yet that that's a part of what I have had to give to God. From that honest moment with God, I just sat down with everybody else involved, with my wife, with my children, and uh, and began to tell my story. Um, uh, the, the, again, the 12 steps, every time you tell your story, your shame is cut in half. And I just began to tell anybody that would listen my story of of this horrible, horrible sin, but this great loving God that loved me in the midst of this. I uh, 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 kind of a mutual friend of ours, I think. Uh, uh, I was approached by uh, Life Today uh, mm-hmm. and Dr. James Robinson, and uh, he said, "I've heard your story, and I want you to uh, to come up here on my program." Uh, but have you written a book? And I said, no, sir. He said, well, you need to write a book, and then I'll have you on the program. I said, sure, I'll get right on that. And uh, I had no idea that. I, so uh, it, to his credit, his secretary would call me about once a month, probably for 10 months, and said, said James wants to know where you're com- how you're coming on that book. How you're coming? <laughs> I yeah. told my wife, I, I think I'm going to have to write this book. I, I think I'm going to. Uh, at that time, Doris and I had had reconciled. We remained separated for almost a year, knowing that uh, we were going to be okay. But we, I had a lot of work to do, and so I continued to go to counseling. We did counseling together. We began to make uh, amends with our with our boys, um, 
And so two or three years had passed, and I said, I, I need to write this book. And so I did. So I, that's how failure and how I achieved it came about, to write that story, to be absolutely honest. So that now, you know, the devil says, you know, if people really knew, if they really know your story, and I say, devil, I wrote a book. But <laughs> it's out there. I did not write that book for anybody else. I wrote it for me to say, I, I need to make sure that as many people as possible know my story. Well, I know, Mike, in, in your ministry now, you're, you're dealing with people that are going through difficulties and no doubt some that uh, feel like their life is over, that they've failed too greatly. Uh, how does your story come into play to give them hope? Well, uh, God has used it to open so many doors. I, I receive probably one or two phone calls a week that will start... I'm a pastor in such and such a place, and I've read your book. That kind of it starts that way. Uh, we begin to have opportunities to tell the story, and people begin to call us and say, "Can we come and talk to you? I've heard your story." Many of them ministers. I've heard your story. Can we come and talk to you? There finally came a point where it felt like God was saying, "Okay, now you need to." And and uh, by the way, this did not happen immediately. It's important to have some years of healing behind yes. you, I think, before you begin to jump into the fray. And so we had we had several years of, of Doris and I healing and growing and him doing incredible uh, reconciliation moments with, the, with our, my children. Um, but I, God finally said, okay, I want you to step out and do this. I went back to school, which I did not want to do, and to earn a, a, a doctorate in, in uh, uh, a clinical psychology, I um, opened a, I always say, I opened an office with a shingle out front and a room full of drunks meeting three times a week. And that's about as, as much as I imagined and as big as I could see it being. But God began to, to take that and to use that story and that branches was born, and branches began to grow. Um, we again out of that story, couples would come, ministers would come. I've heard your story. Can you talk to me about this? And just learning to be uh, to be honest before them, and and helping them to be honest about their own stories. <clears throat> Today we have four uh, different locations. We have twenty five therapists. Last year we saw eighteen thousand people. Um, we uh, we have the privilege. We we deal not only with uh, behavior and emotional health. Now we have both state licensed uh, counselors and pastoral counselors, but we also deal with um, uh, medical management. My, my son, that son who said, uh, "Dad, don't ever come back again." Uh, my son went to medical school, and he does our med management for us and works at the end of the hallway from me and actually is is in process of taking over as the director of branches. God has restored that. We do uh, we medical weight loss because there's a lot of shame connected with that, and we found it. So just God has used that simple story of telling the truth about your sin, being honest about your failure, and being willing to to be transparent about that, he has used that simple story to touch people in ways I never imagined. 
it's it's hard for guys. I know for for pastors especially, it's hard to open up. It's hard to know who you can trust to to share. And the bottom line is, we all struggle with stuff. Wouldn't you Wouldn't yeah. you say that's true? It is true, and I think that uh, two things have happened. One is, again, by the grace of God, down through the years, the church has become less suspicious, and we as individuals have become less uh, embarrassed about behavioral health counseling, about about going to see a counselor. That has happened. But the all, the other thing that's happened is branches has, at least in our story, branches has risen up as a place we are not connected to a denomination, we're not connected to a particular group, uh, and I do think it's a place that, that guys can come, women can come, people can come and feel safe about their story. There was a, a moment um, shortly after the beginning of Branches, all this, where a man came into my life who was who was prophetic. I don't know another way to say that, and he just had this great gift, and and he talked to me for a minute, and he said, I just feel like God has a word for me to share with you. And he began to talk about, you, you feel like you're, you're, you've been a failure, that your ministry is over, that you'll never be able uh, to do anything again. But that's not true. He knew nothing of this story. He didn't know the book. He said, that's not true. God is going to give you a ministry greater than it ever would have been, because people will come to you and tell, them, tell you their story that they can't tell anyone else, and you'll heal them and send them back out to ministry. And in that way, your ministry will be greater. And then he added this line, and no one will know your name. <laughs> and I have loved that and lived with that, wow. that this is a quiet, uh, unknown, anonymous place that, that men and women can come to and tell their story and find out that failure is not the end for them and that they can get back up again. Amen. Well, Dr. Mike, thank you so much for being uh, my guest today. Failure and How I Achieved It, I would encourage you to get a copy of the book. It will bless your life. It will bless others. You've been listening to Real Truth for today, and I'm your host, Pastor Jeff Shreve. Hey, we always say when we end the broadcast, shine and share. Shine for Christ and share what great things the Lord has done for you. And let God use you this day. He does love you and he has a plan for you. And he works all things together for good to those who love him. God bless you.